Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, speakers, contestants, and marathon goers. Embry-Lay has become one of M Pavilion's signature events. The M Pavilion, founded by the Naomi Milgram Foundation, is Melbourne's cultural experiment in the park, pushing the design and architecture boundaries. Today, the same rules apply as a relay. Each session taking its uh, turn. We've heard the um, habitat and ritual session this morning, passing and, and speakers passing the baton from one speaker to the next. M Pavilion, designed by Amanda Levite of ALA in Britain, was recently named by Wallpaper as one of 15 installations that captured the global imagination. So, kicking off perhaps our imagination, creativity, and hopefully our transformation, our host, inaugural director of the Science Gallery Melbourne, Rose Hiscock. Thank you. Thank you, Naomi and Alexandra. It's lovely to be here. Uh, welcome to Cocktail Hour here at uh, M Pavilion. I hope you're, you're uh, make, availing yourselves of the bar and uh, drinks. Please feel free to continue to do that through the session. Um, so, the topic for this um, session is transformation. And I want to actually start with the notion of disruption. We're hearing disruption all the time at the moment, and I think it's quite a shallow concept. It's very simple. It's the fact that technology, emergent technologies bump off uh, more traditional technology. It's a little bit of a show pony um, concept that we've jumped on top of because it's something that we can say. Transformation is a much more interesting concept because transformation has an endpoint, a shift. Something has moved somewhere. Uh, it's disruption plus. It's disruption plus endpoint. And so across the course of the conversation uh, this afternoon, we're going to hear from a, a really fabulous uh, breadth of views from um, uh, different perspectives. The thing that you'll find across this session is that everyone has a skill set and, and a level of expertise, but also uh, are commentators in their own right and some, something to say. So let me very, I won't talk for too long now. I'll just quickly introduce uh, the, I'll do one introduction of who the panel and who you'll be hearing from, and then we'll move fairly quickly um, across each of the speakers. So uh, firstly, um, uh, writer, broadcaster, and interestingly, and maybe a, a lesser known factor, sometimes scientist pre, uh, in a previous life, um, Ramona Caval. Um, Secondly, the Director of City Design and Projects at the City of Melbourne, Professor Rob Adams. Um, Rob has been an architect and worked, um, uh, for, for, uh, worked for the City of Melbourne for more than 30 years uh, and he's been absolutely instrumental in the transformation of Melbourne. Rob, I'd have to say, for those of us who knew Melbourne of the 80s, you had a pretty blank canvas, <laughs> but, it is, but it is an exceptionally different city. Um, one of the uh, United Kingdom's foremost authorities on retail, brand and communication and consumer, consumer behaviour, uh, Mary Portis. Um, bridging art and design. Um, we love hybridity in, in the fields of design, architecture and thinking. Um, the Hugh Williamson Curator of Contemporary Design and Architecture at the NGV, Simone Le Amon. Uh, Simone's known for uh, bridging conversations between uh, the commercial sector and the arts. 
Uh, editor, editorial Director of Architecture and Media, sorry, Editorial Director of Architecture Media, uh, Cameron Brune. Uh, Cameron's a writer, editor, publisher, commentator in the uh, field of uh, design and the built environment. Um, Oluwese Sosanaya, uh, Oluwese Oshe, as um, he's happy to be called, is an inventor, an engineer. He has invented this exceptional thing, which is a 3D loom. And for those of you who know your history of computer science, weaving looms, um, looms have to be the pretender of great change of a society. And Shay has invented a loom that can weave in a three dimension. It's quite exceptional and you'll hear more about it in a moment. And finally, uh, founding editor of the website Parlour, Women Equity and Architecture, Justine Clark. And for those of you who know that website, um, it's an, an, uh, a place an, to advocate for, for the role, place uh, and excellence of women in architecture. So, um, I think that's all I need to say by way of introduction. Uh, what I'm going to do is ask uh, Ramona Caval to come up and sit with me, and we're going to kick it off. Um, is that enough? How yep, okay, good. Um, so, Ramona. Yes, you sit. All right. So the way this works, folks, as we said, is a, um, 15 minutes of um, a conversation and then the next speaker will come up to the microphone and I have the right as host to interject from time to time. So we'll see how we go. So, Romana, I want to... Um, we're talking about transformation and I want to talk about it from... Am I too close? Is something going on? It's all right. He's fixing it. Great. Nice, nice work. Um, I want to talk about it from the perspective of both the pers your personal experience as well as your observations. And as someone who has spent a career in sort of deep observation of society uh, and people, um, I think you're very well placed to comment on the, the subject of transformation. But let's start with the personal. So as a writer, I have a very simple question, which is, are you the same person at the end of writing a book as you were at the start? No, you're not. Um, and you're not even the same person um, at the end of this conversation as you were from at the start. You know, where we've aged. <laughs> we've <laughs> hopefully learned something. But when you're writing a book, especially, um, it takes a few years, and I, I've written mostly non-fiction, um, you are interested in a particular question and you then spend many years finding out what the answers are and um, it changes you every every interaction you have with somebody every interaction you have with a book uh, with uh, with a with a, an idea with a an area of study that you may not have approached before uh, teaches you and and changes you I mean I was a journalist for a long time and um, every book I had to read every person I had to interview um, taught me something. I mean, that's why I did it, because mm. it was fun and because it was like having a, your own open university um, course um, and you were getting paid for it as well. Do you, do you collapse at the end of, end of a book? Are you, do you fall into a, a, a deep well of 
of, of grief for you no. onto the next project. No, no, no. But I have to have another project because I don't feel as if I exist without a contract. Mm. Um, <laughs> because I feel like if nobody's waiting for whatever I'm doing, um, I, it doesn't. It's it's not worth doing in a sense, which is a bit stupid. But it's it's every, you know having a daily deadline for so many years was is really good training. It means you get up in the morning, you make sure you do all your preparation because you don't want to look like an idiot, um, and um, and there's always you know it's complete and it's and it's finished and then there's feedback, and that's something that was. Um, you know, really good for me, but um, it's like, you know, a kind of, um, you know, one is hooked on it. So, uh, you know, when I got my new contract for my new book um, the week before last, I was very happy. <laughs> I thought I can actually spend the next three years thinking about what I want to think about. We'll, we'll go on to your new book in a moment, but um, tell me, are you getting better at it? At, at writing? Yep. Oh yeah, absolutely. You get, you know, you ha you learn everything. You learn, you learn things all the time. I'm getting better at living too, which is really good, you know, because you know it's been a long time now, and it's, you know, and you do want to get better at it, and you do actually. It's actually really good, and you think I know that, or you know, oh, I, you know, I'm a bit wiser here and there, and you give advice to people, whether they want it or not. <laughs> are you are you getting more confident when you say you? You're getting better at living. Is that what? What is it that's that's shifting? Oh, just you know, amassing experience. Yeah. You know, mm. it's like a computer program that learns and learns what to do because it knows what it, what it's done and it, what's worked and what hasn't. And you learn to learn. You you learn yourself. You know, get to know yourself a little bit. Say, oh, I sh I could so not do that job. You know. Yeah. So so tell me, are you? Do you toughen up, you know, having, having been a broadcaster and observing and interviewing others for so long, you've stepped into exposing yourself. Mm. What, what's that transition like? It's fair enough. It's like, you know, um, it's what the story requires. Um, you know, when I was a broadcaster and an interviewer, um, journalist, I was very much constrained by editorial guidelines of the ABC or wherever I was publishing. Um, which meant that you couldn't say everything that was on your mind. Um, and now I'm not constrained and I can say anything I like. Um, and when you write a book, you kind of, you know, you crucify yourself in a way. You think, I'm out here. Say whatever you want. I mean, you you have to have a thick skin. You have to cop the praise and, and the criticism mm. as well. So, um, you know, that's, um, that's good. Yeah. I, I was, um, just as an aside, I was at something recently, uh, Gillian Triggs run an award and I tweeted about it and I, I, was, I, I received sort of a, a trolling response straight away just for saying something positive about Gillian Triggs. And I, I was thinking what a tough skin Gillian must have just for, 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 being, for speaking out you know, in, in that way. Do you, do you ever get uh, very negative feedback? Not really. No. Um, yeah. No, I don't. Mm. But I don't probably don't. I don't think say things that necessarily will engage with that. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I don't think Twitter's my. I mean, I'm on Twitter, but it's not my medium for kind of uh, expressing myself because I prefer to think deeply about things and um, work very uh, strongly to kind of have a convincing argument. Yeah. 
So, so let's move on to the future then and, and, and what's coming up for you and also your view of um, transformation into the future. Do you want to start by perhaps telling us about the new project? Well, the new project has evolved into... Um, I mean, if someone says, what's your new project about? I say, it's about what it means to be human. And um, I, I was interested um, to read um, some transhumans, uh, you know, yeah. w the work of people who are interested in the future, who are interested in, um, uh, I suppose, the next iteration of Homo sapiens. Um, some people call it Homo cyborg, um, which sort of implies that, that we will become machines or machines will become part of us. Um, others were, you know, very convinced that they're, we're, we're really the last generation of, of mortals. And maybe my grandchildren uh, will be in the generation of immortality. So I thought, why would anyone want to live forever or at least mm -hmm. 200 years or 300 years? Um, and I would, and, and you know, uh, and then, you know, people are saying, well, you know, we can fix that. We can make you feel like you're 30 for always. Um, that's the idea. That's where we're aiming. You know, we're aiming for sort of nanobots to be injected in your bloodstream and to fix up all your 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 problems and to and uh, fix your brain. And if something's you know broken or, or worn out, we'll grow something else. We'll grow something in the laboratory and, and replace it. And it sounds like science fiction, but there are actually people working on it um, all over the world. Um, I, um, I I'm. Uh, a fellow at Melbourne University um, in the Centre for Advancing Journalism. And um, so my, that's really brilliant because you get to use the library. And so I have a, um, a, an alert on the word artificial intelligence. Um, every time something's published with artificial intelligence on it, I get a ping on my, on my um, email. So like, lately, like, there's like 50 things a day that are being... Um, pinged um, artificial intelligence in planning a city, artificial intelligence used in delivering food and uh, medical um, equipment in disaster zones, artificial intelligence to trying to work out how the brain works. I mean, there's so many people working in so many ways on these things um, that, you know, and things are... are, are getting faster and faster and, you know, the word the singularity comes up, which is a, an idea that, you know, there will be a time when um, artificial intelligence exceeds human intelligence. And, you know, there's all sorts of conversations to be had about what is intelligence and what is human intelligence and how, do we know how the brain works? So I was interested in, in, in people going, oh, this is, you know, a terrible future. And then I thought, what is it about human beings that we want to protect what is it to be human that we want to um, save or we want to uh, take into the next iteration? So then I had to work out, well, what makes us human? So then I had to think about paleoanthropology paleo and, you know, Homo erectus and Neanderthals and that move uh, to the, the rise of Homo sapiens and why Homo sapiens survived in all the other iterations of Homo haven't. And, um, you know, talk about, you know, chimpanzees and humans and what are the, the difference between brain and behaviour there and um, the rise of ling the language and the rise of culture and the rise of the brain. So that's what I, my project wow. is about. It's about <laughs> kind of trying to, I suppose, it's a, it's a, it's a quest for 
all of these things. I mean, you know, and I, you know, I want to go and do some um, archaeology and I want to go some fantastic sites that are doing some marvellous work. But I know, oh, knowing myself, that I would be complete crap at being the person who's got the little paintbrush going, you know, very carefully, one layer by layer by layer, and, you know, spending, like, months... You know, I'm a kind of... I'm more your blowing up kind of thing. <laughs> What's underneath there? Let's get, let's get rid of all that stuff. So I'm the wrong person for that, so I know that. But I am the right person, I think, to to go through a whole lot of different areas and intellectual endeavours and talk to people who are doing the best work and find out what they think and, and then maybe come to a conclusion. So that's what I'm doing. Wow. And, and so you're writing it as a... Is it sort of a Darwinian kind of evolution? Uh, you know, are you, are you writing it as an arc or is it... Are you, well, I don't know yet. Know? I've just yeah. got my contract. So <laughs> I'm just really reading everything I can mm, read yeah. and, you know, borrowing a lot of books from the fantastic library that is Melbourne University and interlibrary loans and... You know, I love it. This is the gorgeousness of a library and the most wonderful thing of wandering through and working out what you're interested in. And You know, yeah. it's, this is the most delicious part, actually, of writing anything, which is just working out what there is before you work out what your trajectory through it might be. And, to, and so do you have a premise? Do you have a, you no. know, have you, a, a, do you have judgment? Are you going and thinking, you, judgment? well, you know, we're all on the road to rack and No, or, absolutely or not. Androids are no, why would or... anyone do that? I mean, that would be not fun. Yeah. And how do I know yet? I'll find out when I find out. Yeah. Um, well, that's the way I do it. But, you know, other people have other ways. And so you've, um, I mean, the, the remarkable thing about your writing is that from you've, you've moved, you know, it's, it, it's incredibly diverse from writing about cooking through a personal journey now to, you know, artificial intelligence. Um, how do you, how do you make that jump? Is it, is it just a, you're naturally curious? Are you curious yeah, person? curiosity yeah. is the, the most important thing and that's what made me a journalist and it was a wonderful way of being curious about Everything and um, and you you remember what you read. Reading is the most important aspect of all this. Mm. Um, engaging with the work, engaging with ideas, and and then sort of coming, you know, bringing it along with you, really. So, so just take us into the future and your future for a moment. My um, future. Your future. Well, no, no, the, your view of the future, and particularly from the perspective of writing uh, as a media, you know, someone who's been intimately involved in the media and journalism and commentating. Um, where do you see, um, you know, the future of narrative and, and conversation going? You know, is it, is it, are we becoming more um, clamped down in what we can say? Are we opening? Where are well, we going? We're, I mean, we're designed uh, for stories. That's how we understand the world. That's how we learn. Um, we know that this happened and that happened and then that happened. We sort of understand the arrow of time in a sense. Um, that's how our brains work. So, um, you know, we're going to have, have to be very different in the future for that not to matter. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, um, we are in a revolution. This is, this is you know, as much of a revolution as... as um, the, the print, you know, printing revolution was. And, and uh, with Gutenberg, we didn't actually know for a you know, few hundred years what the um, result might be. And, and the results are in all kinds of different areas, like, you know, the production of pamphlets led to some, you know, some revolutionary thoughts because a whole lot of people could read something small and, and agree and become political about things. And that, that certainly wasn't the idea 
when they were you know, printing the Bible. So um, now we've got this digital revolution. We just have to hang on and see where it goes. Um, it is just extraordinary and very different. And, you know, I was having dinner last night with some friends and, and we were talking about how we were so excited to be in this, this fantastic era where we can remember um, not having a television. And, um, you know, one of my grandchildren said to me, did they have carts and horses when you... Have they invented them when you were little? So, I mean, I do actually remember the bread being delivered with a cart and a horse, you know, just in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. So this is a big range of, of things happening and happening so fast. Um, so my sense of the future is, um, you know, hang on and see where it goes. I mean, I mean, obviously do things about the way we live now you know, do things about the politics of now and things that are, you know, you find in unjust. Um, but that's a kind of, you know, smaller world, I think, than sort of looking ahead for the next 50 years because it's going to be very different and it will be very different fast. Mm. Um, Alexandra, does that mean the time is up or we have... A, OK, so just before we finish, when's the book out? Oh, I don't know. It's going to be... the draft? I'm supposed to have a draft in into two years, but they're really lovely, and they, if I said I need another six months, I'm sure they'd say, okay. But, well, I'm, I, for one, will be buying it. So. <laughs> Good on you. All right, so now I'm going to now ask Rob. Yes, uh, Ramona's going to sit, sit here. Please thank Ramona Cavall, and I'll invite Rob Adams to the stage. This is the relay part. This is the relay part, is it? That's right. This must be the shortest I... relay I've ever run. <laughs> oh, Okay, so Rob Adams, um, welcome, Rob. What did you think of my vision of, of uh, the future? Oh, you know, I think uh, I'm I'm with you and wait and see what happens. Uh, but I think we need to plan a little bit. I, I think uh, one of the problems about the future is we are advancing towards the future in many aspects of our life in the same way as we have since the mid-20th century, and particularly in the way we plan cities. Mm. And that I find frightening, that we're not actually thinking about what the city of the future is going to be and uh, how quickly we're going to have to transform our cities. So what was the 19, sort of mid-1950s view of, of doing this? Well, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, there's a lot about the modern movement that I support, uh, and, and in a lot of my architecture, uh, you'll see influences from the modern movement. but. It was very bad for cities because what they tried to do was actually simplify the city. They tried to break out the component parts of the city. Uh, you know, we'll have retail over there and people will live over there and all the dirty industry will go over there. So you were forever having to jump into a car to experience the city. And so some of the cities that came out of that mid-20th century are pretty boring. Um, and uh, we can... Like which, which ones? Well, even aspects of Melbourne. I think uh, suburbia, in a way, is uh, a product of um, people like Ebenezer Hard before, obviously, the, the mid-20th century. But it was part of that simplification, that we'll just have living areas um, and you won't have the mixture and richness that you get in those vibrant cities that we love. 
So, um, you know, I think a lot of our cities suffer from that, and certainly a lot of the colonial cities that grew up, uh, you know, in and around the motor car have those aspects of, uh, you know, simplification. So that's really, I mean, one of the one of the great awards that you've you've uh, gotten is for that uh, report on on transformation. In fact, as as this is this in the title of this conversation, sure. um, transforming what um, development of a city around transport hubs rather than just uh, the, the the end bits of the city, the the, the fringes. Is that right? Well, that, that's part of it. I, th I think that was used to illustrate a concept. Uh, the thing that uh, was interesting me is that um, we're fortunate to be in a city that's growing very quickly. Uh, it's much easier to uh, get a dynamic outcome from a growing city than it is from a shrinking one. So, you know, I don't want to be Detroit. Um, I, I think, you know, as a city shrinks, it, uh, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. But the, the challenge that our cities had is that we were told we're going to double our population in about... 40 years. And then the, the next, very next thought I had, well, so all the stuff we've built since the start of cities, we've got to replicate um, in capacity over the next 40 years. So what does that mean? So you're not going to be able to sort of carry on building in the way that you have for 200 years. You're going to have to think of it in a, in a completely different way. And I suppose a way of illustrating that uh, was uh, that study. And it, it, it looked at, for instance, um, if you're going to get 4 million people in Melbourne, um, where would you put them? Do you want to carry on spreading out into good farmland? Or is there another way you could look at it? And, and the simple proposition was, well, what if you, you just put a, a clamp on the boundary and you brought everybody back in and you built on the existing, trans, uh, on the existing infrastructure? So you and, go up. Well, you have to go up. And, and that's the thing that people get frightened about. They say, oh, well, that means we're going to all live in high-rise. The actual fact was that only 7% 7, uh, 7 of the metro area would have to be built to five to eight storeys. And if you put that along tram lines and around railway stations and brownfield sites, you can actually preserve 93% of the city as it exists today. So it wasn't a frightening proposition. But unfortunately, people sensationalise it, and you know, it's all high-rise. I mean, or, or we all have to live in squishy apartments. Yeah, and it's interesting, squishy apartments. I was lucky enough last night uh, to be invited by some young architects to go out um, to a building they designed recently, which is a very low-energy building out uh, on on the sort of uh, moorland uh, uh, Brunswick side of town, and they had quite small apartments, but well-designed so that you didn't feel cramped. You know, as you walked through the front door, there was a courtyard that actually went through, you know, three or four storeys. And it was just fantastic. You felt spacious. But it was a small apartment. It was 75 square metres. Remember beds that used to fall down off the walls when yeah. we were young? Yeah, I, I, I know. And, <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, they didn't fall down off the walls. Yeah. What, is it, what is it called? Well, they, you know, you're they, a designer. They, yeah, they folded. They that folded folding down. bed off the but, wall. But do you remember actually sharing a bedroom? Imagine if you say yes, to people I today, do. share a bedroom. I mean, I we all shared bedrooms. We did. We yeah. had a line down the middle. Yeah. Well, your I your used to socks are on my side. Uh, sorry, I thought. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I not you. Got any. <laughs> We're not sharing a bedroom. This is not a bedroom. No. <laughs> so you, I know that you um, you went to Oxford Brookes um, University. Yes. Um, to to do your planning masters. Urban design, urban design masters, yeah. Yeah. And, and I was wondering, I mean, um, when you left that, um, was that in the 70s or? It was mid-70s, yeah. yes. When you left that education, I mean, were you sort of armed with uh, an, a, a view of how you're going to go out into the world 
and teach people how to live in cities? Was that, I mean, what was the sort of ethos there? Well, the ethos really was, uh, and the reason I ended up at Oxford Brooks is I went through an architectural education. And um, uh, in my fourth year, I travelled, uh, as you, you have that mid-break in, in the architectural course. And uh, I went to see all my heroes in Europe. And uh, when I arrived at a lot of these places, they were really cold. Uh, I went to the Your heroes, like buildings or well, people? architects, you know, yeah. who you'd read about and, and, you know, people who designed... And were they open to be visited? Well, for instance, uh, I went into Scandinavia and looked at all the satellite uh, towns in and around uh, Stockholm. And when I arrived there, I thought, you know, I'm not sure I'd like to live here. Mm. It lacked a soul. And I wandered down to Italy and suddenly found myself sitting in public spaces and drinking and, and sketching. And I thought, well, so why can't we do this? Why can't we actually build places that feel like this? And, and that really was the start of that transformation. And then uh, having graduated and gone to Oxford, really it started to give me the tools to then go back and look at cities and say, as we put them together, we've got to create good public places. And uh, the biggest public place in any city is the street. So a one-liner for my career, if you design a good street, you design a good city. Uh, and, and that really is something that I don't see why we find that so difficult. Uh, we can look at streets and uh, as long as they're full of people and the, the, the stuff that uh, opens up on the street is interesting and you can get a variety of experiences, that's interesting. So why do we find it so difficult to do that? So now, I mean, um, what, 40 years later, do you, is your, is your sort of, um, what are you, how are your ideas changing? Have they changed from that, that first inspiration in, in Italy? Or are you thinking, well, these, you know, maybe people don't want to come down in the streets anymore. Sure. The next generation might be at home hooked up to their computer and, and, uh, and, and mixing with people online. Well, um, I don't think that's what we actually enjoy. I think, you know, while we do a lot of that, and I see a lot of people walking around with stuff in their ears and yeah. stuff like that, I think uh, innately we want to mix with people. We want to be, as we are here this afternoon, in a group, you know, listening to someone talk. Hopefully we learn something. But it's, we are social animals. And, and so I don't see ourselves retreating back to places and, and doing everything remotely. I think that, quite frankly, that's boring. Uh, remote sex would be really boring. Um, you know, I think you've we'll got to actually... We'll find out soon, though. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to happen. interject as Horace is singing, talking about sex and you've got into the bedroom already and, you know, you're, you're heading towards a, a sort of a married couple in the way that you're talking. But I'm interested in... Um, <laughs> sorry, 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 to, I apologise, no. Um, but, Ramona, that's an interesting question for you in terms of your book and where you're heading. Do you, and are we social animals? Yeah, uh, we, we are. Your, he's he's yeah, right. Yeah. We have been social animals. I'm not, I'm not sure that people interacting online isn't still being social animals, though. You know? You know? We're uh, not smelling each other at that point. We, we might be able to, actually. We might be able to sort of um, induce the same pheromones. Isn't that a controlled experience? Because you're online with someone, and uh, that's an important conversation and dialogue you're having. But when you're in a, a public space, that dialogue is actually being influenced by what's happening around you. And, and so, for me, that experience is enriched 
by what's happening around you. Otherwise, it's just within the confines of two people. Well, not necessarily. And I mean, you know, I mean, you can... I mean, I don't know why I've suddenly become an ambassador <laughs> for the digital world, <laughs> grandmother of six, you know, but I've just got an open mind about it, that's all. Yeah, no, I'm, I haven't got a closed mind. I just think I don't, I don't want to be sitting in a room by my... Sometimes I do. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, we've had a lot of visitors recently and, and sometimes I want to be in a room by myself. Um, but, uh, you know, that's that's not what I really enjoy doing. You know, I, I, on a weekend, the joy is actually not making your own breakfast and, and just walking out to a place and having a breakfast and, and sharing it with a whole lot of other people. So, you, I mean, it sounds to me like you have a kind of view of um, what it is to be human, what it is to enjoy a life. Um, are you going to impose your view on the city? No, not at all. I mean, uh, I think the uh, the best thing you can do in, in, in this particular role uh, is to be a choreographer. And that is to... But that's imposing your view. Like, it's you not stand because, over there and you lift your leg up. Because, uh, you know, before... <laughs> Uh, you know, choreography was actually written down by Banesh. Um, what you had to do is almost by word of mouth. So you had to allow for some free form. And so I think there's certain things where you can say, look, maybe this is the way, the framework we need to put down uh, for something to be successful. But the way people, you know, change their interpretation on top of that is the thing that actually makes cities exciting. So, you know, uh, um, during the week, I was pulled up by, um, I've forgotten his name at the moment, but uh, one of our radio interviews and said, you know, you're trying to fix everything down. The sidewalk cafes in Ligon Street are completely different to the sidewalk cafes in Brunswick Street are completely different to the ones in the city. But they all operate under the same framework. And, and the people around, you know, be they Italian or the artistic and creative, they actually have their own I think they can be both. They can be both. Yes, <laughs> they can be both. Italian and creative. Yes, and, and most will be I. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, I think the way that people interpret within that framework is what makes it yeah. interesting. And I, I have this dilemma about continuity and change. I actually think it's good to have some continuity, but I embrace change. Um, you know, I don't want everything to be thrown out every time. You know, we, we, for instance, we go down to Docklands, we knock everything over and we say, we're going to create character. And you go, well, maybe you've just knocked over a bit of character. You know, maybe there was something there that had value that you wanted to hang on to and build on. And I think the secret of what uh, has happened in Melbourne since the 1980s is we stopped looking at everybody else. We looked at what we had and said, how can we make what we've got better? Do you and think it was there building are on that. lessons learned from Docklands? I, I think there are huge lessons learned from Docklands. In fact, if you look at a study of you know, the uses that have gone to Docklands and Southbank compared to the uses in the city, it's glaring, uh, the difference. Uh, you know, there's a richness in that traditional city uh, that is not being, uh, you know, borne out in Docklands and, and Southbank. And we need to learn from that. We need to learn that, you know, not every building has to be knocked down, that you need to keep some of the small, you need low, le low rental as well, well as new rental. Now, you live in Fitzroy, I think, don't I you? I do, yes. And tell me, is that the best place in Melbourne to live for you? For me, it is. Uh, I think it's a community, uh, and I think we've lost community uh, in our cities. So I actually think of Fitzroy, you know, I had lunch and I was talking to Sasha Babka, you know, who runs Babka's. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so I feel I've got a community there that is part of me. I can walk everywhere. We've got a car, but we share it with three other families. Um, you know, we've got a swimming pool. Uh, everything we've got is within that 20-minute walking city. So I think that's a huge luxury. Uh, you know, I think of people stuck on the fringe. Whenever they want something, they've got to climb in a car 
and, and drive to get it. And we need to turn that around. We need to make things more accessible for the whole community, not just the privileged few. And what about the real politic of getting there? Well, you know, it baffles me a little bit because I think it's so easy. I mean, I think if, if I was a politician, and I, I don't think I ever will be, I haven't got the patience, but um, if you were actually saying to people, we can give you accessibility over time to all the things you need, um, and you don't really have to sacrifice much, but it's not going to be a suburban house block. It's going to be some other form. It could be, you know, a terrace house. Uh, you, uh, you get quite good densities in terrace houses. But you get, you're going to need to get greater densities in certain areas to, in fact, get a richer city. And, and that was the object of that, uh, you know, that publication on transforming the cities. You need to put a density around a public transport system to make the public transport system viable, to get, you know, uh, short-term employment to actually bring the facilities we need into a particular location that you can walk to. So I would have thought it was a very easy political me message, but our politicians avoid it like the plague. Why? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, I had a, a, a discussion with uh, Joe Hockey, and uh, we, there were a few of us around, and uh, I waited to see how long it would take for him to mention cities as part of our economy. And often our city hadn't come up. And then that, they got that new cities minister. That was a little later. And uh, <laughs> I said, so 80% of the population live in cities and 80% of the greenhouse gases are coming out of cities and they drive our GDP. Why do you not talk about cities as part of our economy? And I, I think, uh, unfortunately, at a federal level, and this is not just Australia, this is internationally, a lot of people have not worked out that cities are actually driving the economy of this, this world. And, and uh, we need to then ask ourselves, well, how do we make them better places? And many of the things we're doing today are not making them better places. They're, in fact, diluting them rather than actually enriching them. Well, I'm really glad I spoke to you about this. <laughs> and now we're going to swap seats. Okay. Because we've got the ding. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Ramona, and thank you, Rob. Now, I'll introduce... Um, Mary Portis, who will be interviewed by Rob. Over to you, Rob. <laughs> Mary, welcome. Will I be really rude if I put these on? No, no, no. Okay, cool. No, they're good. Great. So, if we're talking about transformation, when was your sort of first experience or, or most influential experience around transformation? What, where, do you, where do you go back to? Funny, I was thinking about this, but for me, um, it was, I think, the first time when I realised that clothes could express who you were. And, you know, we live in a, a society where often that's seen as, you know, the consumer behaviour and, and buying and uh, selling clothes maybe isn't as important as some of the more, um, I don't know, obviously creative forms that, that we sell. But I do remember, and of course, you know, this man we all know passed away, seeing David Bowie on TV. Uh, in, I was living in a sort of grey suburban um, sort of a town called Watford, just outside London, 20 minutes outside London, and just realising that someone who also grew up in grey suburbia could change themselves and the way that they were able to express themselves just visually. 
I did it very badly. I kind of did the Aladdin saying uh, zigzag down my face and walked around Watford, which was not a good look. But somehow I felt I was expressing myself. There was this 12-year-old kid who was able to say, there's just a little bit more to me than who I think I am in this family. All right. And so how does that lead into... I mean, I, when I look at your career, it, it sounds like one of the most interesting. I mean, from, from fashion to telling governments how to actually improve high streets to running your own TV show. How does that transformational experience lead into all that? You never tell government as well you know. Oh, no, no, never. And even if you do try, <laughs> I'm not sure they listen. Um, <laughs> And it's interesting what you were talking about because it's absolutely in line with what I was doing for government where we're looking at the, the demise of the high street and what that meant in terms of social and community and the implications on society. And the thing is, and trying to answer some of the questions that you guys were discussing because I, I don't think that it's not that government don't care. I just think they don't know what to do. Mm. And only if they listen to the experts, and seriously, I'm not an expert, my, but if, if they listened to you and understood that at the heart of buildings and the heart of high streets are us and how we live our lives. And it's not that any of us are anti-digital because, you know, the, the minute you say, I actually want to communicate and we want to meet, people think, oh, you're anti-digital. You're not. That's going to be part of our life. That is a, it's going to be a seamless part of our life. But there was an incredible book that I read, which you will have read inside out. I flipped it very quickly, but there were some really key things in it, which was Jane Jacobs, who wrote in the 1960s yeah. about the death of the American city. And one of the things that she wrote about that just touched my heart was, wasn't about the commercial retail that we had to have. She talked about maybe in the morning running out to get your newspaper and saying hello to a neighbour, popping along to buy a loaf of bread and bumping into a kid in the queue and saying, oh, do you mind babysitting tonight? Yeah. Walking further down the road and going into the hardware shop and thinking, oh, I, I don't know what, quite what to add, put a shelf up and chatting with the guy. And all these things seem trivial, but the sum is not trivial at all. The sure. sum is how we as humans actually naturally want to live. Yeah. And that's a responsibility that I think government has, whether it's through city planning, which part of that is high streets. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I had that experience, and, and Jane Jacobs is, is one of my heroes. Uh, you know, oh, unbelievable. I think she wasn't listened to, was she, by all those men wasn't. in suits? And, and, you know, because she was a journalist, nobody took her, her, her seriously. They just thought this That's was right. just commentary. That's right. But, in fact, she exactly yeah. put her finger on it. And, uh, you know, when I first moved into an apartment in the city, which was in uh, the Hero Building, there's a little cafe at the bottom called Postal Hall, and the first people who ran that just remind me of Jane Jacobs, because when we went away on leave someone was coming to use our apartment. So we just left the keys with them. We said, you know, just drop in and, and see Faye and Bill, and Faye and Bill will give you the keys. And that sort of aspect of cities is what makes them so rich. I, I, you know, and, and the fact that we're in an ageing society. I mean, yeah. the, the cafe across the road has my door key, as does a neighbour two doors down, as does the builder, because we always forget our keys. So I think half the flipping town in North London can get into my house. But the fact that you have that infrastructure is this, it's a, it's a, security that we just cannot sure. we cannot turn our back on and I think we have a responsibility but here's the thing I think when we talk about high streets of the future it's not just about selling stuff it's about this kind of thing I mean imagine if Naomi had decided right well let's put the pavilion on a high street that's got five clo shops that are closed down we'd all be meeting getting together 
someone would come along and think, oh, there's a crowd, I'll open a shop and sell something. <laughs> That's how you build high streets. No retailer goes where there's not anybody. So it's often done through social interaction first. And I think, you know, we won't have as many shops. The digital world is taking over how we sell. But what we will be able to replace those with are things like this, multifunctional social interaction things that you can't get online speaking to however many people. It's a very, very different thing. In fact, in the week, uh, you, you used a, a really good example which resonates with me when you referenced the Agora in Greece. Completely. The, the Agora, that, that was how, you know, when we look back at the Greek Agora, you know, everybody came together, they'd meet in the town, they'd be probably fighting or arguing or voting, and that's how people, that's how they communicated, that's how they got to know their neighbours. Big crowd, then suddenly someone come along and thought, oh, I'll sell something to them. So they put out a table and they started selling food. And then over the years it moves on and yeah. someone says, oh, I might, I might put a roof over that because when it rains, I'll sell from that. And they start an independent shop and then someone comes and goes, I won't just have a small shop, I'm going to have a big shop and I'm going to call it the department store. And the independent thinks that's the end of me, but it's not. So the department store comes and then some really clever guy goes, well, let's build a shopping mall out of town and that happens. But the thing is, what you have to do is what you were talking about, which is why I fell in love with you. We did a radio show earlier this week. He doesn't know I fell in love with him, but I did. Um, have you I, seen a 67-year-old man blush? <laughs> uh, but the why I fell in love with you is that you totally understood is that if what are, you know, by its very nature, you know, we move on. You know, everyone wants to do something better. Everyone wants to reinvent something new and make our lives better. But we have to have a nod to people and understand how we live our lives. And let's not destroy it all. There was a fantastic um, program in the UK called The History of Our Streets. And it went back through all the history of these streets from the, you know, the what we're now dealing with, with huge immigration. But those immigrants, what they created and what they yeah. developed and the culture that they gave. And it was just extraordinary. And then, you know, there were times when at the worst time, 60s, you know, people came along and said, these houses are slums, knock them down, yeah. let's yeah. build brutalist buildings, knock down some of the most beautiful Edwardian and Victorian architecture, which now are being redeveloped and actually are fit for purpose today. That's right. When we, you know, you gave a sort of chronology of the development of retail, you know, up to the department store, um, we're not always moving in that forward trajectory. Markets have come back. That's exactly what we were talking about. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, One of the biggest growths is markets. Yeah. We've gone right the way back because it's, abs it's, it's like craft, things like craft are coming back, making heritage stuff because people want, there's a security in that. When the world is a shaky place, there's nothing better than going down to a local market, seeing everybody you rub shoulders with every age group, and it, it's heart. It's the most basic thing of trading, you know? It's that transaction. It's two people totally having that conversation completely face to face. And no one says, go, and who got trolled? Rose, was it you who got trolled? Yeah. No one trolls you. Well, they might do, but we'd have an answer back, wouldn't we? <laughs> you know? So, that, you know, that, the, these faceless people that send out the trolls, um, th that doesn't happen. Yeah. You might have a bit of a tiff, we might have a row, you think that was rubbish service, you weren't so good. But you are able to interact on a much clearer and a much more open and a much energised and a purer way. When people approach you and, and say, I want to transform my build business, how do you go about that? Are you transforming the business or are you transforming something else? 
Well, I think anything in transformation, it's never as simple. I mean, business, again, it comes back to people. I mean, I, I do a show in the, in the UK. I think it comes out here on Lifestyle TV where I go into independent businesses or at my agency, I work with very big businesses on how they can move and transform. But at the heart of it is often fear. Fear is the biggest thing that holds people back. And when I go into these small businesses, it's not about, well, you should sell this and this is how I think your store should look. It's about, do you believe that you can be the person or the business that will happen and really connect and grow your business with the world out there? Sure. So it's often huge. I find myself kind of doing a lot of psychotherapy stuff, which I'm not particularly brilliant at, but I do try my best to do because, you know, often people, when they're in a fearful place, aren't the, aren't the best. Yeah. I suppose the big question when people think about retailing now is um, with the online purchasing, what does that mean for retail into the future? I mean, how is retail going to transform? Well, it's exactly what you talked about. It's about experience. So why would I go into a shop where I haven't got great service, where no one actually connects with you, where there isn't a great knowledge, where the place is a bit daggy? That's an Australian world. I picked it up. I like it. <laughs> well, the place is a bit daggy. And um, why would you go in there when I can buy it online and get it delivered? No one gives you, you know, lip and it's pretty easy. Well, the thing is, it, exactly what happened with the music industry. Everyone said, that's the end of the music industry download. What did they do? The rock concerts. How many times are the festivals? And what is at the heart of that? Brilliant music, experience and people coming together. So if you're going to have a great store, some of the best stores in the world, you've got some extraordinary stores here, are buzzing because they're about experience, they're about going out, it's a social activity as well as buying, so we know that there's coffee shops, there's bars within it, you meet, you get advice, and knowledge, huge knowledge. I mean, Apple, one of the biggest, you know, retailers, that you could buy all that online, but people go there because the dudes know what they're talking about, yeah. and it's an incredible experience. Yeah, and you can actually see yourself in the mirror wearing the thing before you buy it. I mean, I, I don't think... That's I'll, not always the best experience sometimes. Well, it's not the best, but I mean, but I'd exactly hate to have bought that. something online and thought, oh, look or at that. Or someone comes in and says, that looks terrific, or, you know, why don't you try it with this? Yeah. You know, yeah. put it on anything. So that's that's the level. The thing is, the retailers that will, will, that will be bricks and mortar retailers will be the best there is. Absolutely. We've had years where there's been some random and some very bad retail where they've made money and they actually haven't put the, the experience at the heart of it. That's going to go. And that will be a great thing. We'll have less, but we'll have better. better. You talked uh, during the week about a, a city up in the north of England uh, that you really admire and go back to and, and uh, was, was a city that was failing. Uh, mm. Tell us a little bit about that experience of transforming a city that was really going backwards. Well, it, it, I mean, it's, there's, no, there's no one answer, but it was um, when I was doing my government report looking at why high streets were failing and what the opportunity were, the, the, the original thing was very much I had the big supermarkets kind of going, that ain't going to happen, this is nostalgia, her report's nostalgic, because the, this didn't, it hasn't happened so much here, but the supermarkets were building out of town, on edge of town, the planning laws were so easy that they literally could build where they liked, and what they were doing is if you look at every pounds spent certainly in the uk or dollar here half of that goes on food so if you take that out of the high street you've got a huge reason for not going there very very quickly 
And so the big supermarkets just did not see well, that was the future. So when I was doing my government report, I'm like, I was up against these guys who were like, it's over. And of course, the government listened to this. These guys are paying big taxes. Right. They're employing huge amounts of people. And I went to this town in, in uh, the north of England called Rotherham. And in fact, it was on the news as the worst affected town. You know, I, had like, I think there was something like 60% vacancy rates in their retail. And I went up to vision them, and it was just the most, just heartbreaking. You just saw kids, like, on just mobile phones hanging on the corners outside chicken shops. Wherever there's chicken shops and charity shops, it's normally a really hideous town. <laughs> and they were there, and it was like they had nothing to do. There was no place where they could hang. Anyway, we set up this thing, what I call town teams, where it's about the people of the town who are all stakeholders, from retailers, from landlords, to the people who live there, to the schools and whatever, coming together to think about what do we need in our town? And they worked with the council and these, these guys did an extraordinary job. Where the banks wouldn't lend money, this council was brilliant. They said, right, we'll refurbish that business. We'll underpin you guys. New businesses starting in there, so young people who would never be able to afford a rent trying out their stuff. And they have literally only got 10% vacancy race now. It is just an astonishing turnaround. Yeah. But it needed creativity. Yeah. It needed risk. It needed a completely symbiotic relationship between local government and the community. And all those things are not easy to come by. No. Have, have you come across Marcus Westbury? He's uh, an Australian who, in Newcastle, just north of Sydney, um, again, a failing city centre. And he came up with his ingenious plan, and that was to convince all the retailers who had empty shops that if they gave their shops to creative people, um, almost at no rent at all, uh, on the basis that if someone else came along who wanted the shop, they would move out. Um, yeah, brilliant. And, and suddenly there were 16 creative businesses happening in the centre. What happened? Other people wanted to come back. And so slowly, you know, he's turned around. having far too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's so and brilliant. They did that in Brixton, didn't they, guys? That was one yeah. of the things that there's all my team from London over there. Yeah. Spot the Londoners. But, yeah, it's... Same, it's, same principle, which yeah. is, yeah. Risk and a vision. Yeah. Mary, it's been an absolute yeah, pleasure. Pleasure with you too. Okay. Long. Good luck. Thank you, Mary. Is this on? Yeah. Now I'm going to ask Simone Lamon to join Mary. Mary, I'm delighted you come with an entourage. I do like I do like an entourage. It's, it's uh, deep, deeply impressive. They're um, enjoying it. This is really interesting for them. You know. Any, anyone got anything to say of the entourage? No? Okay, she can say it all. All right, so um, Mary and Simone, over to you guys. We've never met, have we? We haven't. Mary, can I shake your hand and can I give you a kiss? Oh, God. Oh, very exciting. Oh, how nice. I, I have watched your shows for a while now and I must admit I'm a little bit excited but also just a little bit intimidated. Oh, don't be. I'm really sweet. I'm sure. Isn't that right, Naomi? Um, <laughs> there's a, there was a, there's a program in the, the UK. I don't know if you got it. And there's a woman called Mrs. Merton. She dresses up as, and her first lines in her show is, "Let's have a heated debate." Ooh. And I kind of like that. Let's start with that. But um, I've, I've been finding out all about you. I mean, you started life as an artist, and then you uh, became a designer, and now you're a design advocate. Yes. And I, I suppose, do you see? But can I interrupt just? Of course, there? you can happily. Okay. Because I was really fascinated with your response when Rob asked you um, 
uh, how you began because all of a sudden I start to think, when I was very, very young, all I wanted to be was a fashion designer and I used to drive my sewing machine like it was a high-performance vehicle <laughs> because I used to try and make a new outfit for myself every single day. That was my challenge because it was at that moment that I also realised how design, in this case, changing my outfit, designing a new outfit for me every day was terribly, terribly powerful and um, allowed me to be the type of person I wanted to be when I was growing up in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, not very cultured where I was. Uh, choice of uh, clothing, um, the ability for me to make myself over was very limited. So my sewing machine was my, um, my enigma. So I just thought I'd share that with you because no, I think that's a really important point. I, mean, I, I think I think we underestimate that. You know, often it's seen as you know, if you if you're too interested in fashion, then um, then maybe you know that you're not lacking the greatest in you've not got the greatest intellect. And I think I, I totally agree with you. I think one of the great things that happened, um, and I'm sure we'd agree, is the populism of fashion, where it made it so accessible for so many people to yeah. be able to dress yeah. and express themselves in that way. So, yeah. how then? Why did you not go into fashion design? And how did you go into to being an artist? I mean, that's that's yeah, that was interesting. Um, look, I grew up in a household where my father was an architect, and I saw somebody who was um, constantly tortured by clients, uh, by jobs, <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, I don't want to do that. Um, and somehow, uh, at the time, I had very few role models around me of, I guess, independent fashion designers. Uh, I didn't know Jenny Bannister. I mean, many of the designers at the time that I guess had I met um, in Melbourne um, who were members of the Fashion Design Council, I guess perhaps I would have continued to do fashion, but I became very disillusioned. I did um, work experience when I was 14 or 15 in a couple of um, uh, sort of local um, uh, brand, um, well, let's face it, they were factories. And I guess I was looking for, <laughs> I was looking for a life that was full of uh, creativity and excitement and that capacity to make myself over and to evolve. And I guess um, I didn't see it at the time, how, it was how fashion was manifesting in the 80s, in the late 80s, um, although it was out there, but um, I wasn't in contact with it. And so, yes, I, I decided to become a visual artist because I thought that would be um, deliver all of those things I was after. But curiously enough, I became terribly dissatisfied with producing art that ended up in a gallery and um, kind of rendered moot in a sense that uh, there was no interaction uh, with the work, with, um, I guess, with the community. And in a sense, my voice, which was kind of shared with the work, seemed to then go nowhere. So That's I interesting. Do you think that art has to interact? Can that not be something that's done maybe in, in a gallery with the people that were coming in to see that? Why did you feel that that wasn't um, an interactive or a, 
a positive use of your work? Oh, look, I think I was introduced to the art system. Um, I went to art school across the road here. And you're inducted into a career trajectory, which is all the do's and the don'ts. And if you want to become a visual artist of note, um, and you want to create that profile, well, this is how you do it. And to be honest, I found the system so limit limiting, and I knew the system wasn't myself. I knew I was far more entrepreneurial. I knew that I wanted to engage in society and perhaps, God forbid, produce work that people could use, people could uh, access and buy for, um, you know, the amount of money they might have had in their purse at the time. And I think the uh, perception that at the time that art was something that was more rarefied and to a degree perhaps more of a, um, an elitist activity, it was something but that... But you moved it on, didn't you? You I went moved into design. So you on. went and worked, you worked for an Italian motorcycle company. Talk to us about that. Well, look... Because that's bringing art into design, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, look, after I studied industrial design here, I realised that um, I wanted to have a career overseas, so I moved to Milan. This and is the only country I know where they say overseas. Overseas. <laughs> we want to say abroad. <laughs> Or are we wrong? It's an island. So England's an island. We say abroad. Mind you, abroad's a horrible word, isn't it, as well? Overseas. Right? Overseas, overseas. <laughs> and I get that. I guess like many um, sort of young Australian hopefuls that want to make it overseas, uh, you pack a very small suitcase, but your folio, which was, you know, full of prints and photographs, hard copy. You take your folio and I basically door knocked and, um, and tried to introduce myself to every glamorous uh, design brand that would have a meeting with me. Can we just talk about this for two seconds? Because I am I'm fascinated by yeah. Australian culture. I, I mean, I've been coming here for 15 years and um, when I first came to Melbourne, everyone said, oh, it's 1950s England, you won't like it there. And I totally fell in love with it. And there's this wonderful sort of self-deprecation that was certainly in this city and that, that Sydney was where it was all happening for a very long time. Yet... There is a big yet. I get a lot of Australians turning up in London and they can sell themselves. Yeah. So where does that come from? Yeah, well, I, I grew up with my father's hand on my back, ever pushing me forward. And I think that but, was... But, but also culturally, can, well, can you talk to me about every... Because everyone, they can come in and, wow, oh, we're always impressed, aren't we? You're like, they will come in. And the Brits are, like, much more reserved. But I'm wondering, what, what do you think culturally that is about? Because you did it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess I had very few people in my life that told me that I could not do anything that I wanted to do. So I saw the world as this very exciting place that... Um, I could, I could do anything I wanted to do. And I don't know if everybody grew up with that sense, but um, there was this feeling of um, limitless opportunities or perhaps it was this optimism. There was certainly this drive to uh, make it. There was certainly this drive to go out into the world. 
Um, perhaps it was uh, restlessness too. Perhaps I wasn't finding what I wanted to find in Melbourne, in Australia, in, okay. the, in the 90s. Were you able then, we're talking about transformation, were you able then to take your creative skills and mm. do you genuinely think you were able to then use that transformatively? I mean, like coming up, let's, mm. let's be honest, mm. an Italian motorbike company, I mean, yeah, I don't even yeah, know where to begin. Yeah, I did. Look, I knocked, what, on, what the did you do? Of, I knocked on the door of Ducati and I said... Um, can I design a bike with you? And they <laughs> See said, what I why? mean? <laughs> and they said, why? And I said, oh, look, I've got drawings of motorbikes and motorbike suits. And I didn't tell them that I was getting over the heartbreak of a very sexy boy that used to ride a motorbike. And my own, my way of dealing with it was to then kind of like design a new world for myself with a, a new bike and a new suit Minus the man. So it was some sort of, you know, kind of... I, I basically designed an avatar. It was a way for me to move through a very difficult point in my life. But when I presented this work to Ducati and then Dianese, they took it seriously. They, 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 <laughs> they, they, they went, wow! <laughs> and, uh, and then it evolved into conversations about gender and design. Because, uh, as we know, motorbikes and motorbike suits, um, you know, th their market is predominantly um, for males. And at the time, they were exploring the concept to increase their market to design motorbikes and motorbike apparel for women. But they had no idea how to go about it. Because, uh, as I experienced when I was in the design offices of Ducati, uh, Signor Ronco and Pierre Turbalanche, famous um, motorcycle or bike designers, they all talk about bikes as the woman. So she's beautiful. Look at her ass, you know, look at. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, no wonder they can't design a bike for women because it'd be like they'd be designing their mother or their sister. And so I guess. I had to find a way to communicate to them that women also love motorbikes, that women might need a little bit more room in the breast area in the suits. And so it, I guess, it was an awakening for them in a sense. Um, I had to also demonstrate my love for motorbikes and motorbike riding, which was very interesting. So, you know, I would, uh, I learnt to ride. I even did a series of videos where um, I would run out in the middle of the street at traffic intersections when the, the traffic stopped and as all the motorbikes, this was in Italy, and as all the motorbikes would come up to the traffic intersection, I would run out and go, schools are possible, but uh, excuse me, can I please kiss your motorbike uh, in Italian? I'd kiss the bike and I'd run away and, and when I'd go to Ducati, I'd give presentations. Can I ask you why you did that? Just Well, because I think... <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to follow this. Okay, so the, the challenge is communication. When you walk into an environment where you are trying to communicate or you are trying to impress why your love for something, um, uh, sometimes you need to employ some fairly, you know, radical means. And for me to keep this project going, because the project kind of ran over a period of four or five years, and they were constantly questioning my involvement in the project, um, 
and it's not as if they didn't think that women also couldn't love riding motorbikes and, you know, they didn't have a place for riding motorbikes. But I was always looking for ways to entertain, to excite and to get them curious about me and my role in the team. So do you think that design really is at the heart of transforming our places? Totally, totally. In what way? Tell me, tell me where you really think. I mean, um, obviously we're sitting here and this was, what was this before? Was this just grass? Was it just, just grass? So yeah. this, this is pretty transformational because it's like a wonderful, you know, comma and full stop in the, mm. in the middle here. Mm. Tell me how you think and why you think design well, really I, does affect our place. Design is a shape agent. I mean, you only need to look around and understand that everything that we're using, sitting on, the environment, um, everything we're wearing has been designed and shaped, sometimes with more intention, sometimes with more thought, sometimes with more resources, but it is all authored and that authorship is um, delivered through a mentality or a way of thinking about the world. Um, and so, hence, I am. I have an incredible appetite for trying to understand why things are designed the way they are. Okay, could, if there was anything that you could transform about Melbourne, what would it be? Oh, you know, I actually think Melbourne's pretty fantastic at this point in time. The one thing that I would transform is um, the way we move about. I yeah, think, I would do that with you. I think <laughs> I, I, the, the traffic's too I much. I think the here, traffic is is on that is a note. Concern. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, I believe I have to sit there yeah, and thank now you very interview much. Cameron. That was wonderful. Thank you, Mary. I could talk about the uh, motorbike all day. Um, thank, thank you, Mary. Um, there is the, there are the odd chicken shops as well in Melbourne that we might have to deal with. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Mary, I'm going to give you um, um, carte blanche to take the microphone at any point to say, what, why do you do that? What, what, so at any point, just go for it. If you want to say, well, the, the sort of, you, you people are odd. Just <laughs> please explain. <laughs> That's I don't the, need the mic to do it. Okay, go for it. It's a, you, have, you have an imprimatur. So, uh, Simone, uh, you're interviewing Cameron. Over to you. Thank you. Cameron, welcome. Hi. I do believe the last time I saw you, we were dancing on a dance floor. It was a silent disco, I think. It was a silent now. disco, yes. <laughs> okay, so look, I want to begin by talking about your personal transformation. So from architectural student to writer to editor to domain expert and creative director. So what has propelled your ongoing transformation? It's a fairly big question, but I think um, if I was to think about um, the trajectory of my career, it's like it kind of has a hinge point on the first day of architecture school. Do tell. <laughs> so I think, you know, like most creative people, um, or not most, a great deal of creative people come from pretty boring suburban or rural upbringings where the idea of being an artist or an architect or an entrepreneur is not necessarily part of what you imagine your future might be. So I think for me, that first day of architecture school back in 1998, suddenly for me opened up an idea about what, what the future might hold. Mm. And as it turned out for me, um, having spent a lot of my younger years thinking I might want to be an architect, um, 
within a very little, soon of studying, studying architecture, I decided I didn't really want to be an architect. And so and, what, and was, hence, what was the thing, though? There's always a moment. What was the I moment? I think it was the, the idea that, um, well, one, I don't think I would have been a very good architect, so that's probably, that's probably quite a good reason to decide on another, on, on another path within a profession. But um, I think at some point in that, those early years of studying architecture, I realised that I liked talking about architecture more than the idea of perhaps making buildings. Hence moving into publishing, which is far more glamorous. <laughs> Should be. <laughs> <laughs> Should be. Okay. But if we can talk, just go back to architecture for a moment. Um, what do you think is transformational architecture? Uh, I think transformational architecture is architecture that's produced in a way, in a collaborative way that involves a client and that client um, in its broadest sense. So a great piece of architecture is transformative um, if it helps a bank in the CBD make more money, because that's something that architecture can do, what design can do, um, but it can be transformative in that it makes uh, a contribution to the fabric of the city to us as citizens. So I think, um, I think we need to think about transformative architecture as being a very broad sweep of things. Okay. So like a beautiful house might make my life happier. A well-designed hospital might heal you quicker. Um, you know, I think... We think, when you think about architectural... Architecture has transformative power that's, that's a very broad church. So it's ultimately the capacity to affect us. Affect, yeah, Whether it be change. individual, society, environment, a exactly. city. To okay. nurture, to change, to challenge. All, the, all those things that a great piece of architecture could and should do. Now, is this what you deem newsworthy in your capacity as an editor and a writer, when you look for... Because you're constantly looking at projects, whether they be architectural, uh, landscape, urban. Um, you've, you've written about everything. <laughs> but is that what you deem newsworthy, something which has a transformative element or capacity? I think that's a really... Um, it's kind of a very interesting question in that the... the the role of the editor, particularly in the field of, of architecture, has to mean to make pages of a magazine. You know, it's a kind of, it's a very well rehearsed art. And um, you know, I was lucky enough to be taught by some, you know, really amazing people about how to actually do that. But um, the architecture magazine, in its traditional format, is actually mainly a communication device between architectural professionals. So people who know, what an know how to look at an image and read it, to know how to look at a set of plans and understand the relationship between section, plan, volume, street, all those things. So I think um, one of the things I learned, I think, very early on in my publishing career is to look for something where there might be a story or news that exists beyond what your audience might reasonably expect it to be able to deduce for themselves. And usually that's something outside of what's built. So it's a story about uh, an inspirational school principal who's led a process of transformation within a school where the building is a key component with that. It's about the CEO of a bank who says, I want this business to be different and we're going to use architecture to transform the way people work on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, this is really interesting because in the world of design at the moment, certainly from a point of view of examination, sort of, 
I work across the road there and we're constantly looking at design projects and I am more aware now than ever the role that narrative plays in design to the point where we've coined this phrase, you know, design as narrative, in a sense that everything that is designed is telling a story. It's whether or not we can decipher what the story is and often the designer is not even cognitive of what the story is. So do you see really what your role is to tease out what the yeah. story or the narrative of a work can be? I think there's actually two components to that. The first actually relates to a number of conversations that have been going on here today around the media, about the high street, about all sorts of aspects of the way in which our world is changing. Um, uh, I think... Um, I think what's, uh, I guess what I think what's really required is um, um, a process through which um, you know. a process through which you read the work. Yeah. Because what uh, were you saying I, before? Yeah. About no, I think that I think the real them. thing is everyone's making culture today. Okay. So um, the result of um, a digital re revolution of social media of everything is that um, everyone perceives themselves to be a maker of culture. Your Facebook account is a record of culture. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I know, um, it's wonderful. <laughs> you know, Justin's in Instagram account is a record of culture. So I think the real challenge today is actually to tease out what culture is relevant now yeah. and to try and anticipate what culture might be relevant in the future okay. or have lasting value. And that's the really difficult task and has, in fact, made, um, made the role of the editor, the curator, or whatever you want to call it, somehow seemingly a whole lot more difficult, which yep. is what you're articulating, is yep. like in this kind of um, peak content world, what is interesting now, which is the challenge, the bigger challenge, what's going to be interesting in the future? What will have longevity? Okay, so speaking of relevance, will magazines be relevant in the future? I mean, if we're talking about transformation well, of you're in media, um, so with, you know... I think, digital, um, I think where um, Mary's got it spot on with shops. Yeah. So what will be left is the good stuff. So to survive, survive this revolution, um, high street shops that are left will only be really good. Okay. Same applies to magazines. But can, but can I be a bit of a devil's advocate and say, why is the magazine, why is the paper magazine relevant? Why, even if all the the only stuff that is left is the good stuff. What still makes it relevant? Uh, I, well, I think what's changed for the magazine, and this is, um, this is a kind of journey from which magazines are probably just exiting this transformation at the moment, yeah. is that they um, magazines in, in architecture, in design, in landscape architecture, in whatever design discipline, used to have to work really hard to do a whole lot of things. So they would have to be newsworthy, they'd have to be a record, they'd have to be provocative, they'd have to be all these things. In actual fact, in this process of, of transformation, the architecture magazine, as an, for example, has become more like itself. So it's, it's more like... Can you like, explain? What, what, what do you mean by um, that? So it's, it's the same as the shop. The shop, the high street shop, has gone back to being an experience, not just a place where things have exchanged. Okay. The magazine has done the same thing. 
It's not just a place where information is exchanged, where you hear about the latest bricks, or you hear who got a new job. It's actually an experience of architecture. So will we go back to the magazines then that we collect and we keep in the bookshelf? I remember I used to collect ID and I had piles of them. And then I got to a point where I thought, oh, I can't look at that makeup from the 80s anymore. I'm going to throw out all my ID magazines. So you're suggesting that the content that's generated is worthy of collecting and preserving. Exactly. So Which it's means not it has to be really good. Really good. Okay. It's interesting. So do you see yourself, is there a place for you in this in the future? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I mean, think, um, uh, I think the architecture magazine will outlive my career. So I think I'm fine. Bold statement. Bold so, you know, I might retire in 20 years. I think the architecture magazine will still be going very well in 20 years' time. Next generation, they can worry about it. Yes, it's interesting. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I spend um, a great deal of time um, reading about the technological singularity and um, only reading uh, a bit of Kurtzwald last night um, because I really do think that the singularity, we are, there is a tsunami of change coming. But there's also a tsunami of information. Yeah, yes, exactly. And I read this great quote this morning where it said... Um, and actually, I've written it down, so so I don't get it get it wrong. While all transformation is change, not all change is transformation. And I think um, we see that on a daily basis. Um, you know, this this was my 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 Christmas present. I'm wearing a you know one of these um, eye watches because I want to get to understand where this sits. Um, you know, is this that the, should make it a tax deduction? Is this <laughs> yes? Is this the advent of, of something that I am yet truly to understand, or is this just a fad? And it's starting to shift the way that I am thinking about the digital completely, to a point where I don't understand why people don't have placards in the street saying, you know, prepare for the singularity because it does have the capacity, not just the capacity, but the ability to change what we see, experience, do, how we behave in ways which I think are quite inconceivable at the present. So hence, you know, if we think about the magazine, it sits into a very, an understand, a value system that we can understand at the moment. Yeah. But with things like technology, new and different value systems are created. Um, just think of the relationship that we have to our photographs now. You know, um, I don't know here who prints out their photographs from um, iPhoto or whatever and makes photo albums. I know I don't do that. I know that, you know, I have some more mature friends that make photo books, but I just live with the knowledge that I have a digital record of moments that if I choose to go back into and retrieve, I can. But my value relationship to the photographic or the, the photographs from my life are very different than when I was a young woman and I treasured all those photo albums and they mm. all had to be hard copy. So I guess that's where I'm leading to is that in these domains like publishing, and we've only got to look at music, you know, where if the magazine doesn't survive, 
the, the next value system, where does it morph? And if it does live in the digital uh, world, yeah. where's your place in well, that? Um, in actual fact, we're experiencing roughly the same situation as the music industry. So um, the, the, um, the funding for a magazine used to, used to be about people taking ads in a magazine. I mean, it was a very simple process. Um, the value proposition has moved as it has in music, where people aren't so much valuing the object in terms of its commercial value, it's moved to events. So in actual fact, um, the gathering of people together is, is probably, for, for me in my career, I would say three quarters of my job now is, is in facilitating people coming together talking about design, whether it's in a festival or a conference or a symposium. Um, which, which is essentially a mirror of what's happening in the music industry. Because you were recently the creative director of This Public Life, the 2015 Festival of Landscape Architecture. And I came along to a few of those events and what I was amazed by was the social cohesion. Like the, the great sense of community and sharing between the landscape architecture, um, all, the, all, the, you know, all the colleagues, and that is something that you don't get when you read a magazine. It has to be the party, the event. Exactly. I think that's a great note to end on. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to move off. Thank you, Simone, and thank you, Cameron. Um, Shay, can I invite you to the stage? I'm somewhat disappointed to note your footwear. Um, so, well, I'll get you to explain once you're, once you're, once you're up on stage, given... Uh, yeah. <laughs> We'll get there. Okay, over to you guys. I, th I think your shoes are fine. Okay, thank you. But, but why does she think they're not fine? Um, because I actually wove my own shoe soles with, my, with the machine that I created in 3D Loom. And um, I actually, they're more of an exhibition piece. I mean, they're not, they're functional, but not in the sense of, you know, if you step in something, it's really going to be hard to clean it up. Yeah, sure. You've seen them, yeah. <laughs> so. so I think we might, we might get to that in a minute. At first, I thought my ask... Um, Welcome to Melbourne. Thank you. And yeah. ask why you're here. Um, I'm here as part of the British, in, the new British Inventors, and it's um, it's kind of a program put together by the British Council where they're looking at um, invention in the in UK right now. What's happening right now is in terms of people taking an approach to craft, traditional craft, and new technologies, and how uh, the merging of these two can lead to new innovations. And that's something that, that the UK has done very well for for a long time and my particular area was in textiles which is something that the UK hasn't been doing very well yeah. for a long time but once did once we're the top of top of, of the class yeah um, it might be interesting for you to know that um, in Australian department stores the uh, area where you buy sheets and towels is called Manchester department okay yeah which is um, one of those other um, slightly Australian curiosities like daggy and um, overseas okay. um, but I think it's um, I want to pick up on the idea or the use of the word inventor mm -hmm. because um, my sense is over the last few years we've seen a kind of re-emergence, perhaps as a result of people being really sick of the word innovation um, as a kind of a catch-all for change. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether, do you call yourself an inventor? And if so, what do you think that, that, that kind of moniker... Yeah, Means. I actually never called myself an inventor until the British Council called me, <laughs> called me an inventor. Um, 
And maybe that's a case. Maybe you can't call yourself. An inventor. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where. I, I think it's. I guess it's for the for people to call you you an inventor. I guess if you say I invented this, it's kind of putting your mark on on you. You created something. You brought something to life. But whether or not it's truly useful is something that is yet to be seen. And, and that's something that uh, the people that are going to consume the product that you've made or use the process that you developed can kind of classify you as an inventor. Yeah. Uh, in terms of innovation and versus invention, I think innovation is something that. You primarily stay within your um, your dominant skill set, and you're able to maybe take some borrow something from another skill set and then innovate. Whereas an inventor could probably span multiple skill sets, or even looking at multiple industries and seeing yeah. how he can kind of bring things together in a more cohesive way. And and maybe without even touching the invention that's actually being developed, you know, just by kind of orchestrating um, parties to to come together and, and create. So, so maybe you should um, tell us a little bit more about why the British Council are calling you an inventor. Okay. What, what have you What have you invented? <laughs> so, I, um, I, I, in in graduation, graduate college at the Royal College of Art, I was looking at um, the merger of craft and technology, and it's it's really funny because some people think craft needs to be this traditional thing where you're you're touching the wood, you're sanding, um, but historically, craft was technology. It was you know, uh, a new way of, 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 of pouring melt metal or creating a new type of mold. That was, that was the technological advance of the time. And somehow we kind of dis dis detached ourselves with mass production. So we are creating machines that do the majority of the work and maybe there's very little human intervention. And my theory and my thinking behind that is uh, there's, there's got to be w ways to borrow from the best of both techniques. I mean, you get a beautifully finished product when you get a pair of handmade shoes. Yeah. Um, but likewise, you can achieve some some geometries that you can never achieve by hand with machinery and so I want to apply that to the textile industry which is thousands of years old I mean it would go date back to the Egyptians even yeah so that's something that's ingrained in our DNA is, is weaving and I noticed that even in some of the most technologically advanced mills I went to Yorkshire for three days and just spent time at like the Burberry mill Paul Smith where Paul Smith gets a lot of his um, textiles uh, woven as well, and it's it's the exact same principle. It's it's just a, a, an up and down, a binary a code. Warp and a weft. Warp and a weft. Yeah. So I wanted to see how we can, you know, leverage some new technologies where we have computer-controlled machines that can win three-axis, and apply that to to the weaving. And and uh, as a result, I, I I like to call what I've built um, a concept car. So you know about concept car in the vehicle industry. It's not necessarily something that is going to roll off the shelf and be in your in your driveway tomorrow, but it's something that can dis can spark a conversation. Yeah. Um, not quite a DeLorean, but almost. Yeah, exactly. So it, it could spark a conversation, and what I really want to achieve with my work is is uh, working with um, machine producers and and trying to explore how we can produce a machine that can that can then make three-dimensional material that we can then wear yeah. eventually. So is your observation that um, um, the loom, you know, like at least 7,000, you know, like 5,000 BC, it sort of mm. appears, um, mechanised in the, you know, the second half of the, of the 18th century, that since, you know, in the last 250 years, it hasn't, hasn't really changed that much? Well, I was really desperately searching in my research to see, okay, like, is someone else doing this, or is there something I'm missing? Is it, yeah. you know, so so as you know, is this fabric the same as it was? Yeah, and and years ago? the short answer is yes. Um, a slightly deeper answer is there's we've actually just improved the the way that we can weave. We can weave a lot faster. We can weave a lot higher resolution. Um, we could even weave with certain tensions in place. So a lot of um, things like 
uh, carbon fibered helmets, for example, mm -hmm. those are woven with uh, tensions in certain places so then when it comes off of the jacquard loom, it can then be stretched across a form and it can maintain its, yep. its strength. So we've, we've taken the process very, very far in those 250 years. However, we haven't really broken that, the basic binary structure of zeros and ones. Um, so I'm adding a zero, one, plus maybe a two if you're going up one, yep. one degree. And, and I think there's even threes and fours to be added to that in, in terms of weaving. So, so what, do you, uh, what do you think is the application? What are the possible applications for your 3D loom? Um, that's interesting. I've, I've, initially, I was just purely thinking about how I can make that jacket a smart jacket. So you can wear that jacket, you're riding your bicycle, and you fall off your bicycle and it protects you. And you don't look like a, you know, a superhero riding your bike with all yep. your pads on. Uh, but after the development, I started to discuss with people at Imperial College London um, around scaling it down and maybe using it for artificial ligaments or scaling it up. And then we're looking at civil engineering and structural components. So very fitting to the discussion today with architecture. Uh, yeah. And so it just really, it really varies in, in terms of scale, in terms of material. Um, one area that I was really passionate about was um, bulletproofing. And in, in the UK, there's a big issue with women's bulletproof vests. So it's actually not the bulletproofing that's the issue, but it's the stab proofing. So in the UK, there's no guns, but um, stabbings occur. And, yep. and as a result for a female um, bulletproof or stab-proof vest, it, it rarely ever passes. And that's because the female geometry, the body geometry, is much different than the males. Um, bulletproof vests are made up about 25 layers of uh, woven extruded polyethylene. And that material is then layered on top of each other in different directions to disperse the energy. Now, if you take um, that material and you place it across your chest, for a man, we have no issue. But for a woman, when you try to bend that, it becomes very difficult. And what they have to do is segment the garment in different areas. And those create weak points. So right now, what they use is uh, chain mail inside of the vests. And it's just... Slightly ancient as well. Yes, yeah, slightly ancient. And the woman's vest is a lot heavier than the men's vest. So that area and that, that application would be kind of the, the pinnacle of where I would like to take my work and, and see how we can create a garment that can withstand that kind of those kind of pressures and those kind of um, impacts so the um, 3d printing seems to be I mean it's a kind of it's a, it's a buzz it's a buzzy idea mm. um, which makes me think you know like that if I lose a button on my shirt that you know Alexander Wang will email me a code and I can press print on my printer mm. at home and print myself a new button you know like that's my ideal world yeah. of, of 3d printing um, what do you think is the future of, of 3d printing as, yeah. you know, as a manufacturing technique. Yeah. Well, uh, I would say just slightly different than yours. He would never have to email you the file. You can create the file yourself. I think uh, my real fascination is with tools. So how can we create those tools that will empower you to then interact with that 3D weaver, or that 3D printer, excuse yeah. me. I'm stuck on the weaver. <laughs> um, yeah, so right now a lot of people are talking about 3D printing, but when it comes to creating that digital file, there's, it's, it's a roadblock for a lot of people, and that's because the software is too complicated. It's too... Uh, it, it's too logical and, and um, linguistic heavy. So if you don't know extrude, revolve, um, chamfer, fillet, you know, you're going to have a hard time interacting and, and creating that digital file. So that's another area I feel is really important is developing new softwares that allow us to in, engage with the machines that are going to eventually come into our homes. So once they're in our homes, what do you think we're going to do with them? Well, I don't know. I think <laughs> there's going to be a whole... Uh, a whole uh, insurgence of, uh, of designers. You, I mean, everyone's going to end up designing things and, and, and creating things. And so yeah, okay. that power is going to come back into the household. And I'm really excited to see what happens. I mean, I, we, we've already seen some 
Um, some of the most touching things I've seen is like a mother who has a, a child who's severely um, handicapped. She was printing braces for her child as the child grew older, and then she can then you know help her move and help her uh, kind of regain some of the dexterity. So that that was quite interesting, and it's really human imagination that's yeah. going to allow us to, to take it further. That's a nice segue into the relationship between the material and the hand of the designer. Mm. Um, do you get the sense there's a radical or a trans, transform, transformation in the way designers work in response to different, different ways of manufacturing? Absolutely. Um, so my background is engineering. I, I studied design when I went to the Royal College of Art. But even as an engineer, I would find myself going to the factory and watching what the process will enable you to do and, and maybe what people are not leveraging. And that was one of the key things during my research was going into going to the mills in Yorkshire and just seeing um, what it, what's being overlooked. And, and, and I think any great designer, great architect, great engineer, great creative in general, mm. will look at the materials and look at the processes that are used to manipulate those materials at, at whatever stage. So maybe it's create, bringing the rocks out of the earth, or maybe it's just the way that they cut and slice the stones at, yeah. from the quarry. And they'll see how they can leverage that, that manufacturing technique or that processing in a way that they can create a, a, a sellable good or, or something that's aesthetically pleasing. So, I mean, uh, even artists use this. In, in, yeah, in, in, in there's, the a great, there's a great anecdote about the um, turn of the 19th century um, American architect Louis Sullivan about he couldn't stop handling the materials. Yeah. You know, and it was a, it's a really yeah. nice way of talking about yeah. that very direct and somewhat visceral relationship between mm. designer, architect, engineer, and the material of their invention about what what they're Absolutely. using to communicate what they're yeah. doing. I mean, even in the household, I, I grew up with cast iron, and right. and I didn't know how much I'd miss it until I moved to London, <laughs> and I, my mom couldn't provide me with any cast iron um, cast iron skillets. So I'm using you know this stainless steel or whatever material they're using in the, in the, in the kitchen. And my my roommate, she finally got a cast iron skillet, and I, I just forgot that that touch of yep. the cast iron when you're cooking, even the way it cooks your food. So you kind of have this connection with that material that goes way back and, yeah. and you don't know exactly why until you start to do a little bit of research and that's so it's something I think it's even beyond the designer beyond the architect it's, it's a human thing the connection with, with us and materials yeah. so going back home uh, do you think there are aspects of the the environment that you grew up in the people you grew up with your family that inspired you to uh, pursue this as a career uh, yeah absolutely uh, I think well I learned chess as a ch as a child, and I think that was one of the sparking uh, moments for me to to start looking into um, uh, materials. And it was around how you sequence. So chess is all about you know what what move comes after the next. So when it started to come into the creative field, I started looking at how to sequence things. How to how do I make the end result? You kind of know what you want as end result. You can make a two D sketch, but then how do you get there? What's that journey like? And and it really enjoying each step of that journey, not trying to shortcut it. So there's one thing I really dislike about 3D printing is I think a lot of people jump straight to the 3D print. They may not go through that process of understanding what materials could be used, what processes could be used, and how to design around that. And that's one thing that I really enjoy, and, and I think I picked it up as a kid, um, just learning this, this kind of system of sequencing things and, and, and trying to enjoy each step yep. along the sequence. Yeah. So what is the, um, what is the sequence from concept car mm -hmm. to um, my jacket saving me when I, you know, with your product, <laughs> with your invention, if I fall off my bike? Okay, so... Um, I think that's where we are now. So I, first, I propose something. So 3D. Or first, we propose a question. Weaving. Um, your jacket is probably woven and knitted in some areas, but it's using technology that's been existed for a long time. So how, first, the question is, how can we enhance that? 
And the next thing is to be able to research. So we go into the we go into the mills. We go and, and speak with designers. We go and speak with I mean not just uh, designers but engineers as well. Uh, and then eventually we start to come up with a proposition. That's the 3D weaver. From there, we try to entice different segments of, of people that would be interested in putting some capital behind it. So um, from architecture to aerospace to medical maybe. And then we create a proposition. So that would be a, a full rolled out machine that could then be leveraged to make all kinds of things, all kinds of garments. But yep. Primarily, it would or, probably start... Or windows or doors for a building. Exactly. It would probably start with a building or something that's kind of high, high gross. Um, and then it will trickle yeah. down to the design industry. Where, and, and the designers, will, they'll pick up on this process. And they'll start to use that process to, to design um, some fantastic um, clothing. I mean, we look at this pavilion here. And, and I'm sure she couldn't have done this with, with uh, carbon fiber if it hadn't been for aerospace industry or even the, car, the automotive industry kind of first putting that foot out and saying, hey, look, this is how we're going to um, we're going to reduce weight. We're going to sell faster cars. We're going to have lighter planes. And so it kind of then finds its way into, into art and architecture yeah. and, and design. So do you, do you think the design, architecture, art, engineering fields are very good at learning from each other, at sharing ideas? Uh, I think historically they have been. Um, now it's... <laughs> I think we're, we're working on it, and I think we're, it's coming back, especially now that we're in a, kind of a period of renaissance, and I think that the, the digital kind of revolution is, is a big part of that. Being able to make your own things in home, uh, being able to really have transparency to the, to the manufacturing practices, yep. this is really helping. Yeah, great. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, please thank uh, Cameron and Shay. Thank you. Okay, Justine. So I'm now asking Justine Clark to join the conversation. Hi. So okay. over to you, Shay. So, uh, <laughs> I, I did a little bit of research about you, and I haven't met you formally, but I'm, I was quite happy to be able to interview you because it's what you're doing is actually transforming an industry, and that's Trying quite to. that's quite it's quite interesting for me because I come from an industry um, where there's, there's not many minorities. Mm. Uh, I often find myself in events where I'll be the only minority um, or one of the only minorities, and even in engineering school, my bachelor's. Um, I was one of two minorities mm -hmm. that graduated from our graduating school class, and I think there was about three or four women in the mechanical engineering mm -hmm. um, program. So I wanted to know from you, um, how has the inequalities in the architecture industry in, in, in Australia, is where you're specializing, how has that held back transformation? Um, well, I guess our argument ties um, fairly closely into arguments that have been developed in other industries too around you know, the so-called business case for um, gender equity and, and more broad um, cultures of inclusion and um, systems and structures that allow participation from as diverse a group as possible. That So um, architecture has a situation where for the last 20, 25 years, the graduates of graduate architectural graduates have been approximately half women and yet still uh, women leave the profession at much higher proportion. So there's a vast amount of knowledge and expertise that's just kind of going. Now, some of that knowledge and expertise is going to other places where it's, you know, doing yeah. great stuff. But um, architects are really, really great at designing futures in terms of buildings. They're not very good at designing futures of their own discipline. So um, gender for us, I suppose, is, a, is one lens to talk about um, diversity and, and ensuring that the kind of broadest range of experiences are brought to bear in the design industries. And um, 
you know, it's interesting that you, that you raised the, the question of ethnicity. We, uh, my colleague Karen Burns and I were talking just yesterday saying we really want to kind of get that conversation going through parlour um, and starting to commission people to write. I think the other thing that's really not talked about is class, and yeah, it's definitely. huge. Yeah. It has a huge impact. Um, there's a really interesting piece in the conversation recently asking what are the consequences for medicine of the fact that most medical students come from very, very high socioeconomic backgrounds, mm -hmm. and what are the consequences of that on the industry? And I think we might ask the same about architecture, and I think it's just kind of useful to know. Are there any industries right now that you would say are uh, an example for us, or kind of like the beacon that you can follow? Look, it's interesting. I mean, we, you know, we look at the, the actually, we've been looking at the programs that are going on in engineering, and they look fantastic, and we have people from small business looking at us going, well, that looks really good. So. There's a kind of broad social and cultural issues which I think in fact affect almost all industries in different ways, but that's not to say that different industries can't make specific and particular changes within. So architects are very, it's very easy for architecture to go, oh, it's not our problem, it's society, but actually there are particular um, aspects of architectural culture which, which you know, make it harder for women to participate for their full capacity. And women as a group, no, you know, there's lots of great women architects. Yeah, it's sure. not, you know, you everyone's having a terrible time, <laughs> but that that as a group, um, the vast amount of statistics now which show that, um, you know, we're not getting the best we could. And, and what are some of the contributing factors? I mean, one of my favorite designers is Patricia Urquiola, and mm -hmm. she's, she's a Spanish architect, actually, by, by yeah. education, yeah. but she's a, a fantastic uh, furniture designer. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, what are some of the limitations for for female architects kind of rising to the to the status that she well, has? Well, look, I think um, actually a lot of architects go sideways, and I don't think that's yeah. a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but it, the question is whether you go sideways because you see opportunity, or whether you go sideways because you're pushed out. Yeah. So we don't we want to make sure people aren't pushed out; that people are going sideways for opportunity. Architecture has a very deeply entrenched culture of very long hours and um, architects, despite kind of, I guess, what everybody imagines through the media, are not really that well paid. And so that combination means that as soon as you have any other commitment, like caring for elderly parents, caring for children, simply wanting to do something out, it makes it very difficult to maintain a career in a culture where there's this kind of really strong presenteeism. And, you know, those long hours are really mostly about bad management. They're not actually about yeah, producing better management. work. Yeah, so sure. we're kind of, you know, I didn't imagine I'd become interested in the management of architectural practices, but I kind of am because I think that's part of it. And there's just, there's a very strong, um, my colleague Jill Matthewson talks about a culture of devotion, where you have to be devoted to architecture, and any commitment to anything else mm. is seen as a kind of, you know, so if you're, if you're working part-time because you're making an exhibition or teaching or, you know, setting up your own business, that's all fine because you're still devoted to architecture. If you're working part-time um, for caring responsibilities, and of course, you know, men have children too, and not all women have children, but in Australia at the moment, most primary carers are still women. Still now, we might want to change that, but until that changes, we have to make workplaces that, you know, make it possible sure. to continue to participate. So. And, and in the architecture industry, what, what elements are we missing that the female can bring to the game? That Look, I mean, we are, we're very wary of saying women do it this way and men do it that way. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's all of it. I think you can end up... But in the perspectives we, are yeah, completely but different. but perspectives yeah. are different. And, and so different um, experiences 
bring bring you know different knowledge to the table. Mm. Now, gender is one way of of, of having people with different experiences, um, but we'd be very reluctant to say women design this way, men design that way. It's a, it's a huge trap for everybody. Or, you know, yeah. we've all, anyone who's gone through architecture school who's, as a woman has been told they'll be good at doing kitchens and really yeah, some sure. of us might be, but that's not actually why we're, yeah. you know, so kind of, we're, we're saying a diverse range of experiences what it will result in better outcomes. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, I want to share with you just a little bit um, about my research that I, I worked very closely with a weaver initially because I had no weaving expertise mm. and she was fantastic. I mean, really skilled. She was very technical, um, knew how to do everything on a Dobby loom. But then when I went to go do research in the mills, it was all men. Yeah. And not just that, it was all men, I would say 45, no, even more. So maybe 50 plus running all these all these looms and they're mm. very high tech looms. Mm, 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 mm. And I'm just wondering where was, where's the gap because they can obviously understand how to, you know, produce all this machine uh, all this material and crank it out but she was able to really fine tune and find these kind of these innovations within you know mm. within the machine that was very old that she was using so how did that gap how did that generational gap happen but then how, how did that also that gender gap happen why why isn't she <laughs> You know, if you can tell me that, we can fix everything. <laughs> Look, know. it's really complicated. I mean, I think, you know, with our work, people kind of want to go, well, what's the problem and how can we fix it? And we're like, well, the problem is really complicated and the way to fix it, like, there's mo we need to do lots and lots of different things. So it's yeah. about workplace cultures. It's about expectations of what an architect looks like. You're probably also talking about a class-based context sure, as well, sure, there, yeah, I'd say. Sure. Um, um, but, you know, in interior design, for example, where, you know, like vastly high proportion of graduates are women, the senior people in interior design who earn the very high salaries are principally men. So there aren't mm. many men coming out of our interior, in, interior architecture, interior design programs, but gee, they get to the top really fast. Mm. So there's issues around, you know, much broader things about what, you know, again, these are kind of generalisations, but um, women tend to be assessed on what they've done. Men tend to be assessed on what people see their capacity to do. Sure. So, you know, there's just these multiple tiny little moments of inequity that... So it's an evaluation issue, maybe. Yeah. So maybe so more kind peer of evaluation could help. And, I mean, there's this re interesting project um, with an orchestra. They were trying to shift their recruitment to become more gender balanced. So they had people... Um, uh, you know, auditioning behind a screen so they couldn't be seen. And that kind of changed things a bit, but they could still hear high heels. Sure. So they got everyone to audition <laughs> in bare feet, and suddenly the assessments that were made were really different. So we all, men and women, um, assess people yeah. through multiple filters, mm -hmm. and gender's one of them. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, so. one, one area that's really exciting for me is um, the digital area, obviously. Yeah. And, and um, I spent... I, went to Silicon Valley not too long ago just to have a, a quick chat with some people and I found that, you know, it is lacking in women, but it's actually really growing if you go into like the primary schools and yeah, women, yeah, girls yeah. getting into coding and, and, yep. and, and developing yeah. their own apps and developing their own websites. I mean, what would what do you think is the tri contributing factor to this? Because this is really exciting. Um, well, I mean, there's lots of my daughters are doing coding in primary school. It's yeah. fantastic. There's lots of um, there's a lot of work around women in in, in the technological areas, and it, it is again an issue in architecture with the rise of BIM and mm -hmm. that um, the BIM specialists who are making the decisions tend to be men. So we've got something on pile at the moment actually going. Come on, you know, mm -hmm. you need to get involved here. Um, 
I, I kind of want to take a slightly different twist on the digital. Um, I was really interested in the discussion that Rob was having about how, you know, really we just all want to be in the street together. And yes, we do. But the um, thing we found with Parlour, Parlour was set up as an online, um, as a website originally. And through, um, we're, and we really, really heavily use social media. And we found that we were building new communities that didn't exist in real space. Mm. Um, we were pulling, so people, we had a lot of people saying to us, well, I was just wondering if it was just me. Or if I, uh, yeah. no one had talked about gender for a long time in architecture since the, you know, early 90s. And so we, we found that as a very useful space to build new communities of interest. Um, and I think, so I think communities are built and made and maintained in an online environment as well as, mm. yes, we all want to hang out in the street, but we don't all live in the same city. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so we, I, I kind of think that's it's really important to bringing, to, uh, particularly bringing together communities of people who may not have a stronger voice. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and, and maybe the internet is also helpful because... Um, my mom is a single mom. She's actually a principal of a school, and mm -hmm. I know that she's very outspoken, and it feels like, I mean, I think many times she felt like she has to be kind of this bitch, you know, yeah, to yeah. really get get her point across, and that's the way people have to view her to get the power, and, and I, I, mm -hmm. it's it's really hurtful to mm -hmm. hear her say that. So on, on a digital platform, you don't necessarily have to be uh, exposing exactly yourself all the time. You can kind of have the voice without... Yeah. I don't know without being... I mean, I think there's two that. questions there. There's the questions about what leadership looks like when you're... Yeah, yeah, you know, sure, and sure. How, how people who are, who are, you know, if you're a woman, you're seen as aggressive. If you're a yeah. man, you're seen as powerful and yeah, in charge. Sure. And, you know, it's all just tiresome. But we kind of... We know that works, and so we have to work with it. Yeah. Um, but, yes, you can... But it's also, I think, that sense of knowing that you, it's not just you. That yeah. there's all these other people out here out with there. similar interests and similar... And being able to connect across geography... Um, and, you know, we've now got this fantastic international network. We weren't expecting to, you know, you know, my colleague was in Istanbul last year. I was in Seattle. We were talking about the work. We weren't expecting that. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, there's the kind of potential to... I think one, one of the things we've done is, is made almost a new identity group that people might mm -hmm. be part of at the same time as they're part of the architectural community and this community and that community. It's, a, it's another kind of community, so... So what do you think we're going to see with a more balanced <laughs> Australian <laughs> architecture uh, community? Uh, well, hopefully, you know, just better, better built environment, better mm. public outcomes, better, um, more nuanced understandings of how the built environment work for multiple groups of people, mm -hmm. um, more complex ways, that, you know, spaces that are designed for multiple, you know, for lots of different groups to use. Uh, there was a... Um, a planner from New York here last year talking about the way that different ethnic groups use public space mm. and that if you've only got one ethnic group designing the public space then you know the uh, he was using soccer games as an example where you know kind of Anglos go and drop their kid and run and some other another ethnic group comes along with half the family and you know the, the and you see it in airports the way yeah, yeah, you know I'm in, I'm a New Zealander and airports, uh, if P Pacific Island families, like everyone's there saying goodbye, and you have to design for that. So, um, yeah, look, just, you know, more complex and sophisticated understanding of how you people use space. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Right. Good on you, Justine. The last leg. Well done, folks, for hanging in there. We're on the home straight. <laughs> so I get to interview you before you get to... Great. Right. Well, 
um, having done my little bit of research about you, I've kind of particularly interested in the museum work that you've done. Um, and I presume that you might be able to talk about other things, but let's start with museums, because it, it seems to me a way to talk about continuity and transformation. Museums for a very long time have, have been sites of research, of education and of spectacle, and they've combined those three roles, and I think in ways that perhaps few other public institutions have done. And so I, I guess I'm interested in how how that's shifting and change, how, how those three things continue to come together. I mean, maybe research is less so now, but... Yeah, what is the continuity and what's the change in the mm. world of museums? Uh, it's a good question. and I, I might actually pick up um, where Shay has left off and um, talk about an object in okay. the, the collection of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences, which is the museum that I've been running up until uh, the end of last year, uh, which in, of course includes the Powerhouse Museum. So um, in our collection is a piece of this thing called the Difference Machine. And the difference machine was a contraption uh, invented by a guy called Charles Babbage, who some of you may or may not know. Uh, and Charles Babbage is considered to be the precursor to um, computer, modern computers. And Babbage um, was inspired by Jacquard, by the loom, in the development of the difference machine. Uh, Alan Turing was inspired by Babbage in, in inventing uh, his machine, so, and, and so on. So Babbage, I will get to the point. Yeah, no, no. Um, <laughs> Babbage um, held salons. So he invented this thing sort of late 1770s. He held these salons into the early 1800s where he brought together the, the sort of the great minds of London, the luminaries, to really marvel at how wonderful it was. But, but, he, but, he, but he brought together poets, thinkers, scientists, artists. Um, you know, uh, he was clever. He brought, brought together people with money. Uh, he, he brought together government to his house, to, to, to these salons, to have a, and he'd show them his contraption. And I reckon that's a fantastic concept, the notion of the salon. Uh, it's kind of a bit like what we're in today. It's a space to engender conversation, discussion, provoke, and ideally to do it with hybrid disciplines. So, and one of, one of uh, um, I think, the, the most exciting things about museums and spaces is that um, we're moving away from, we're moving into a multi multidisciplinary approach. So we're not just doing one thing, we're doing, we're, we're hybridising our thinking and our design and, and that's what's exciting about museums and, 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 you know, what they can do into the future. And you've come to join us here in Melbourne for the Science Gallery, yep. which is exactly that, so science and art. Um, which again is something which have two disciplines that have incredibly long and entwined histories but are often presented as these, you know, kind of in this oppositional situation. So um, I think on the website it talks about it as um, a collision of art and science. And I'm kind of, I wonder if you might talk a little bit more about how that kind of productive encounter might yeah. lead to transformation. Well, look, I, I reckon we're lazy. I reckon we're essentially lazy as public institutions. We care about, and I'm looking at, you know, at the <laughs> public institutions across the road, but, you know, we care about, and, and politics have taken us this way, we care about 
bums on seats. That's it. We care about getting money and getting visitors through the door. And I think that's inherently lazy. I think what we should be doing as public institutions is solving problems. And we should be thinking about ways that we can work uh, with colleagues, networks, ideas, uh, intellects, and our publics to start solving problems. And in the same way cohorts of scientists do around the world. So if you think about, you know, um, viruses and, you know, it's, it's almost competitive to, so, to, to, to crack a code, to, to, to find a cure. Um, I think public institutions should be working in that way. So Science Gallery is a concept that comes from Trinity, Trinity College in Dublin. And it was set up really um, to, no, noting the... the the, the hybrid disciplines of arts and science and that they can be brought together to do something quite um, yeah, greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, and I'll, I'll just, because it's a new kind of space, I'll just explain what it is a little. Um, it's super simple. It's super simple. So the idea is you bring together great minds. So, a group, you know, a think tank, think of a topic. And so it could be... Um, it could be disruption, it could be virus, it might be data, secrecy, uh, synthetic biology, climate change. Uh, so work out whatever the, the subject is that is of interest and then go out and find a curator who's interested in working in that area and then a call for expression of interest for artists and scientists who are working in that area and then develop an exhibition, a program or whatever uh, to respond to that area. And then because it's part of an international network, so this is a concept that's being brought into Dublin, London, Bangalore, I'm bringing it into Melbourne, and then there'll be three other nodes into the future. The idea is you do a program and then you export it. You send it out into the, into the marketplace. It's an... In why I like it is, you know, we've, we've built a cultural sector here in Australia that is inherently, outrageously, revoltingly competitive. <laughs> we do not want our our fellow uh, uh, colleagues in other cultural attractions to succeed. We don't. We want to win. We really, I'm sorry, but we do. And having just come out of a fiercely, you know, Australia's most competitive city, um, it's the city of vultures, really. You know, it's it, the, 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 sorry, hope, Can I get geez, my phone I, out? I know, don't, don't, I get in so much trouble. Um, you know, the, to, to, to work in a city of ideas and knowledge where um, collaborative exchange is the end point and I have a network of, of institutions to uh, work with and play with, uh, that's deeply exciting. And I, and I just think it's got to raise the, the conversation up from just, you know, bums on seats, which yeah. I think is inherently dull. And, I mean, you're associated with the... University of Melbourne, I believe, and so you know that yeah. kind of commitment to doing more than being an attraction. The, no, look, that's that is the attraction of it. So, so it, it's embedded into the University of Melbourne. In, they're all embedded into universities. So, Trinity College, Dublin, King's College, um, London. Uh, so, the idea is to to use the sort of the foundation and the bedrock of the university's research and knowledge as a starting point for a conversation, and then take it beyond that. So, there's there's a lovely. Um, you know, um, background for, for knowledge and ideas. I have to say I haven't started. I start on Monday. So, <laughs> so this... I just this, want to know more, so I'm helping yeah. it. <laughs> so I'm kind of inventing what it is. Um, <laughs> it, it might, might okay, be, I've got know, one wrong. more question then yeah. about it. Um, mm. the, the demographic you're pitching yeah. to is 15 to 25, mm. um, although I'm sure 
you know, I might be allowed in. Maybe I'll, if I could bring my kids. Um, but that, again, seems to me um, an ambition also partly about education, perhaps, and, and, and very much about projecting people into the future yeah. in mm. in certain ways. So, so look, that's also deeply attractive, can I say, doing... Um, Smart young people. Yeah, working uh, inherently for adults uh, and, again, having spent a career working um, through the whole uh, life stage of audiences. Uh, I love the idea of doing something that's entirely provocative and... Um, uh, topical, you know the. I'll just give you a, a little anecdote. Again, I have to be a tiny bit careful. But in um, in Sydney, we've just um, at the Powerhouse opened this exhibition called Disobedient Objects that um, Christopher Allen has written a review in uh, the Australian this weekend about, and it's a and it's it's ex an exhibition about the um, objects that have form part of social movements. So there's a lot of protest movement material in in it. We that's as, from the VNA. That's from the VNA, and then we, as the powerhouse commission, Brooke Andrew, the um, Australian fabulous contemporary artist, to um, do a companion piece alongside disobedient objects called Evidence. And we said to Brooke, you know, go into as as museums often do with artists, go into the collection, take whatever you like, do whatever you like with it, interpret it how you like. So he brought out, you know objects that hadn't been on display for many years, including, we've got a very good, um, the Powers has a great um, a medical collection, including uh, loads of drugs. So opium, hash, um, loads of drug paraphernalia, paraphernalia, bongs, those kinds of things. Uh, we also have deeply di di distressing materials such as, you know, breastplates from um, Aboriginal people. And, and Brooke chose to put those on display. I, I had to do, I did, uh, four written briefs to the government and two verbal briefs about why we would display this material. And it, you know, I, it was, I'm almost speechless about it now still, it was the, the most deeply frustrating thing I've ever had to do to sit, sit with an advisor who was 12 to explain what a public institution is about. You know, we, of course we show provocative material, that's the point. You know, we're here to create conversation, that's, that's our remit, you know, that's what museums should be about. So, you know, oh, what was the question? Oh, adults, yeah. So, so oh, no, I, find I was it... thinking, I was thinking, oh, it's for young people. I was yeah, thinking, yeah. actually, because, you know, so you you see this as, yay, I don't have to write things for 10-year-olds anymore. Well, but I'm sort of seeing it well, as... Well, being the advisor, you know, yeah, I was, I was not asked, all 60-year-olds. No, I was asked by this woman, the, the advisor, you know, why would you show illicit substances? And it's kind of... <laughs> so, so the idea of not being asked that uh, and to show illicit substances with context, create debate, uh, you know, is, is fabulous. I hope this job's all you hope it is. <laughs> we'll I'll, have you I'll back make, in a I'll year. make it into it. Mm. <laughs> Hey, what else have I got here? <sighs> um, I'm interested in the question of audience yeah. and how you um, might use these things to sort of build connections within new audiences. I mean, there's a very... I mean, I was at the fabulous um, exhibition at Tarawara of... Um, oh, my... No, what's his name? Howard Arkley, of course. Oh, yeah. But, you know, everyone in that room who was looking at it kind of looked the same and they all looked, you know, nice and arty. That's great. But um, I'm sort of interested in how other kinds of programming might also 
produce new kinds of audiences and new interactions between audiences and yeah. what that might lead to. Look, and, that, and that's the that's the challenge um, working in this space. We uh, our job is to introduce people who ha who you know don't think of museums or or um, as part of their daily life and 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 for it to become part of the sort of the fabric of you know being human. Um, the <sighs> You know, the, again, looking at the NGV, the NGV has been remarkable in the last yeah. few years in in re-engaging, you know, audiences in in uh, seeing the museum, the the gallery as part of their their city, their um, you know, whether it's to go to go to the late night, the bar, or to see art. And and for me, either are okay. It doesn't, you know, I'm not wholly a, you know, I'm not particularly precious about why you visit something. Um, you know the. The thing that the, the most the, the dullest conferences you can ever go to in living history are museum conferences. <laughs> and the sec, my second point is the only the only people I will not employ are anyone who have done museum studies as a course. And I get a lot of trouble for saying that, but it's true. They uh, because people learn to say no, no, and, and they talk about audience all the time and how to how to make connections. Um, where the cultural sector needs to look, and particularly the museum sector, is outside our own mm. paddock. So the people, I think, who are um, creating audiences in an interesting way at the moment are, are banks, and it's because they're hated by their audiences and they piss them off constantly and they make mistakes constantly, they have to apologise all the time. So they therefore have to make a relationship that's um, compelling. And I think that's a much more interesting model than, um, and you know, w w it's easy for us as you know, we should we should be able to build audiences because we're not, you know, fucking up people's lives. Um, so 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 it should be okay. Um, uh, but we, we, but perhaps, but we probably need to work a little bit harder. But I wonder if the yeah. science thing doesn't also open some opportunities because I imagine the audience for the powerhouse, for example, is a little bit different than the audience for Tarawara, for example. You know, so, pulling yeah. those two well, two realms together, yeah. one would think might you might have some, you know. Good yeah, I, look, I think you, the powerhouse is an interesting case in point. But I don't know whether you know what was happening there, but the government announced that it would to be was to be moved to. Um, Parramatta, and part of that was about um, building a new audience. You know, it's it's like saying one of these museums would move to Dandenong. So it was definitely about um, building a new audience, and 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 really statistics. So you know, um, Parramatta has one percent of the arts funding and ten percent of the population. So therefore, you know, the the sort of the um, the the equation was pretty compelling. Um, what's your question? There, I do get. I am going to point. Um, <laughs> I, I forgot. I've forgotten too. <laughs> I think okay. it was something about science having different audiences and the potential to pull those together. Yeah. Um, so, so look, I think there's. You, you, that's uh, sorry, that and so the answer. <laughs> sorry, and going back to the dull museum thing, we talk about relevance all the time in the museum world. So, how do you stay relevant? How do you do something that matters to people? And that's why we have to look outside our own sector to to, to answer that because the answers are not necessarily inside. Outstanding. I'm going to leave you alone okay. to sum up. <laughs> I'm going to sum up my own thing. Okay. Well. Um. Okay, so my job now is to try and pull all of this together, which is great. Um, and look, I, actually, I think, uh, strangely enough, um, the topic of Ramo Ramona's 
book is really the subject of what we've been talking about, which is being human. And I was thinking about a little um, model of, uh, you know, when you chuck a pebble into a pond and and of what we've talked about today with sort of being human at the the central ring. But then the concepts of um, community, of society and and being social, um, of sort of ethnicity, of gender, of uh, class, um, sitting on, on, on one of those rings, um, of, of community and what, it, what does it mean to make a community and for that community to thrive and, and, and the thought that goes into that. But then I wanted to run across it another model and it, and it really is inspired by Shay and the notion of um, dimensions. So if there's anything that's... Um, suggesting a way forward for us is to think in multiple dimensions. I think, I think we're, we're, we're the same things that we always have been, which is human and hu- humanity and social. However, the complexity of what um, we're dealing with in terms of the environment that we're living in as well as uh, governments or agendas, um, we have to start thinking in multiple dimensions. And that's the interesting challenge uh, for us uh, as as a as a group of people who are who are desperately keen to, to to think about the future, so in a way I think Shay thinking in that mo- that extra dimension to the loom, um, we've bookend the the conversation with R- Ramona's idea of hum- being human and Shay's extra dimension, and I'll just leave you with those two ideas to think about um, as as you go out into the world. The the only thing I'd other also say, in the, you know, this lovely space that enables an open conversation that Robin Archer um, talked about before. I can't get over the number of people kissing out on the. <laughs> I don't know whether you guys have noticed that there's so many people snogging. It's like, it's just you know this sort of petri dish of humanity is happening. There was there were there were two people sitting over there having a little snog and this sort of hand going down pants it was great you know quite spectacular and then I, and then well just a little bit later than that it's sort of a joint wafts over over from this side which is you know again that the notion of uh, here thank you for making such a, a lovely space for uh, Naomi and team um, so finally thank you to all to all of you for listening uh, and thanks to the M pavilion crew and to Alexandra thank you <laughs>